But let's start with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this time that we can come together as your people and discuss your word. I pray that you help us, Lord, to to understand what it is that we're encountering, to approach it with humility, with wisdom. And Lord, we know that Jesus says that everything from the law to the prophets is about him. It tells us something about what it means to worship him as God and to be his follower. So help us, Lord, to ascertain the meaning that you would have us to know as the church. And we thank you for this time and for these people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And we very reluctantly say amen. Because as you can see that there is not a lot of encouraging language here. But before we get into that, I think it's important for us just again to remind ourselves of what we're dealing with. So last fall, like I just said, in our Sunday evening study, we are in the book of Jonah, who we read was a prophet under the king of northern Israel. You see up there on the map, there is Israel in the crosshairs and below it is Judah. Those are the two kingdoms that used to be a united Israel. Jeroboam II is the king of Israel. Jonah was a prophet in the court of Jeroboam II. But our fall study this evening is going to focus on Amos, who was also a prophet and contemporary of Jonah's, but from the southern kingdom down there in Judah, specifically in a place called Tekoa. But whereas Jonah's ministry was primarily to the Assyrians, which would be kind of out past Damascus up to the northeast there, in the city of Nineveh, who were the enemies and the eventual conquerors and oppressors of Israel, Amos's ministry is not to a faraway country, but it is up from Judah to Israel itself. So we have a lot of ground to cover tonight, so we'll have to move briskly, but it's helpful, I think, to have some historical context before we get into the spiritual content of Amos. So first, let's set that scene. Like I just said, the United Kingdom of Israel under Saul and David and Solomon at this point in the story has been divided for about 200 years. And so um, without going into the whole history of the civil war between Rehoboam and the first Jeroboam, long story short, the northern kingdom who had the most tribes of Israel uh, stayed to the north and they built their capital city in Samaria. But they also built some important religious centers in Dan, which is at the very northern peak of Israel, and then in Bethel, which is between between Judah and Israel there on the map. It's not listed, but that's where um, Bethel is. And that's where Amos spends a lot of his time, between Samaria, further north, and Bethel. Samaria is the government capital of Israel. Bethel is the religious capital. Now, here's an important question and something for you to respond to. When the Bible talks about the northern kingdom of Israel or its kings, is it ever positive? No, not once. I think there's maybe about eight, ten kings in Judah's history that it commands after Solomon. But in northern Israel, goose egg. Never a good king in northern Israel. They are all decidedly wicked. And Jeroboam II, who is the king during Amos' ministry, is maybe one of the worst. The prophets look at him as the pinnacle of evil. And so, just as some context, in 2 Kings 14, verses 23 through 26, this is how 
he's described. Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, became king of Israel and Samaria, and he reigned for 41 years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, and he did not turn away from all the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, that he had caused Israel to commit. Now, that Jeroboam is the first Jeroboam, and he was about 200 years prior. But this Jeroboam restored Israel's borders from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, who had spoken through his servant, the prophet Jonah, son of Amittai, from gath But, this is an important but here, but the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter for both slaves and free people. There was no one to help Israel. Now, here's the assessment of Jeroboam II, as, as laid out in, here in the scripture and a few other places. He was a successful king in terms of his military and in terms of economics. He expanded the borders of Israel, and typically in the Old Testament, when you see a nation expanding its borders or talking about expanding its borders, that is seen as a blessing. So he has expanded the borders of Israel He's not only expanded their borders, but also their bank accounts. Even extra biblical resources will tell us that Jeroboam II had a very um, prosperous reign during those 41 years as king. But as you just heard in the scriptures, he is described as a very cruel man, an idolater that made life miserable for everybody under his reign, slave and free person alike. Now, if you were listening carefully, you heard another familiar name in that passage. Who was it? Somebody else that we've been talking about several times tonight. The prophet Jonah, son of Amittai. And Jonah is, if we don't remember, he was a prophet in the court of Jeroboam II, but he was kind of a a yes man. He was a, he was a sycophant. He really sucked up to, to Jeroboam. And he's supposed to be a preacher of righteousness. That's what prophets are supposed to do. They're supposed to preach God's message to the people. But as my brother Greg loves to say, he was as crooked as a barrel of fish hooks. So he maybe was part of Jeroboam's administration, but he would just tell Jeroboam whatever he wanted to hear. So when people heard the name Jonah, Throughout most of Israel's history, they didn't have positive associations. And even after you read the book of Jonah, you really don't have too many positive views, if you understand the book well, of Jonah as a person. And yet, mysteriously, our great God of grace calls Jonah to go and preach in Nineveh, which is the capital of the Assyrians, who are an even more corrupt and barbarous and debauched empire, even more so than Israel, but they are rivals and enemies. But Jonah, we remember, runs away from his prophetic duties and from God, and yet God stops him with a storm in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, and he's thrown overboard, and a fish swallows him up, and he's in there for three days praying, and then the fish vomits him on the land, and so Jonah is finally compelled to go back to Nineveh, a wicked, wicked city, and preach. And guess what? Nineveh repents. This terrible people that would impale pregnant women, babies, elderly people on spikes and set them outside of the walls of Nineveh. Terrible people. When they hear Jonah's really half-hearted sermon, they 
believe and repent. And it makes Jonah furious. He's so angry at this. Why? Because he hates the Assyrians. He hates the Ninevites. And he's angry explicitly that God would show them compassion and mercy. That's why he said he ran the first place. I knew, Lord, you'd be merciful. That's, this is a preacher. You know, you think if, if, if a preacher you knew went into the city of Atlanta and stood at the Capitol building and said, repent or Atlanta, or Atlanta will be overturned in 40 days and there was a great revival throughout the city, you'd think you'd be happy about that. But Jonah was disgusted. And his last words in the book about wishing he were dead rather than see his enemies come to repentance. And so the purpose of Jonah's story for believers is really surprising because it's meant to kind of offend and upset and confront our sensibilities. Because God's man, the person from God's own people that's been raised up to be a prophet is the most immoral and, and, and scandalous person in the story. But then you find these Gentile sailors, you find the, the pagan Ninevites, and even the dumb cattle repent of their sins. Everybody that's supposed to be a bad guy is the one that's actually listening to the message of God. And so the story is supposed to confront us by reminding us that God's compassion will seek out our most vile and despicable enemies and make them into friends. The scandalous point of Jonah, I believe, is that the God of the Bible does not have any of the prejudices that we do. He is not flustered by our national, religious, ethnic, or social biases at all. He's totally disinterested in that. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And he'll save people we hate, and there's nothing we can do about it. Now, if you pay close attention to the New Testament, if you're paying close attention to the stories of the Gospels, Jesus' ministry really looks like this often. He's eating with the tax collectors, the prostitutes, and the, the religious people, the Jonah-like people of the day, are reviled at the people that Jesus is loving and blessing. So I think now we're getting into the spiritual content of the book. I, I think it's here that we're, we kind of understand what the minor prophets, how they work and how they upset our sensibilities. And it's here I need to warn you again that we need to steal ourselves because while Jonah, we talked about last fall, um, is somebody that goes and preaches to God's enemies and they repent and we see how God is, is, is greatly merciful to them. Amos is going to do the exact opposite thing. Amos is going to come to the God's chosen people that are supposed to be good church-going people, that are supposed to be a kingdom of priests, that are supposed to be worshiping the Lord and loving their neighbor, and they're doing none of that. And so where they think they're, they could never fall, they'll never be conquered, they'll never be exiled, Amos tells them, if you don't repent now, only disaster awaits you. And he goes down the list and he picks out different people in society and condemns them for sins that look very familiar to us in our day and age. And so whereas Jonah confronts us because God loves our enemies, Amos is going to confront us because God will, um, God will deal justly with his people. 
especially those that refuse to um, refuse to listen to his word. And so Amos tonight, as we're going to get into, and, and this is really just the introduction, I, I'll let this, uh, or I'll read this quote, rather, from Gary V. Smith, who is an evangelical Old Testament scholar, and the way he sums up what Jonah is really all about. He says, Jonah, or sorry, Amos is all about. Amos' words included criticisms of Israel's inadequate worship, their misguided priorities, their oppressive acts against the weak and the poor, and their utter lack of holiness before God. And so what we're going to be finding as we get into the story of Amos now is that God takes his people to task when they say that they believe God, when they go to church and they say they trust in him, but they don't in any way, shape, or form look like the people that he's called them to be. He deals with them seriously. And we see that. We'll get that to this in the New Testament, especially, I think, next week, in the coming weeks. But you go to the book. If you think this is just an Old Testament thing, that, that that's, all that stuff is done away with, I challenge you to go to the first few chapters of Revelation and read how Jesus speaks to the churches very critically when they have all the right doctrine. I think it's Ephesus that Jesus says, Hey, you have the good, right doctrine. You've resisted the Nicolaitans. You, you've resisted this, this heretical group, but you don't have love in you. You don't really love me. You don't love other people. And so I'll take my light from you. And so lest we think that this is just meant for some ancient people that doesn't exist anymore, I, I think we need to remind ourselves that sometimes Jesus' harshest words in the Gospels or in the entirety of the New Testament is for church people. So that's just a word of warning that we are going to, to, to deal with some uncomfortable stuff this evening. But I'm, I'll, I'll say this. This will be my pastoral word. Don't avoid this stuff, church. And the reason why is because it's in the scriptures because the Lord doesn't want you to avoid it. But if you avoid it, you will ultimately deprive yourself of the blessing of getting through it and seeing to the other side where God's grace is. But we have to deal seriously with sin. God has to confront us in our uh, weaknesses. He has to confront us in our, um, the things that are unholy. He has to confront that in us. But if we listen to him and are obedient to his word, there's only grace and forgiveness for us. So we don't have to be fearful. We don't have to be afraid. But we do have to be serious about these things that we're facing. So let's go ahead and just jump into the text and start to discuss this. Let's look at these first two verses, especially. And in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, we meet Amos, who is a sheep breeder and a fig farmer from the suburbs of Jerusalem. Tekoa was a, a city about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. And so he was more than likely, scholars think, just kind of like a middle-class business manager. He, he did a little bit uh, with figs, a little bit with sheep. And so he's not a trained priest. He's not specialized in, in a religious ministry. And yet God chooses to speak through him to northern Israel about their both their economic and their social sins against their own people. So he calls up 
Amos, of all people, to go into Israel and take a look at their culture and lifestyle and utterly denounce all the idolatry and injustice he finds there. So throughout this book, we're going to read all about how he visited um, different places in Israel, like the illegitimate temple of Bethel, and he saw the idol worship that went on there. They built, they built a, uh, a, a golden cow and put it in the temple and said, this is Yahweh. Have you heard that story before anywhere else? Exodus? Did it work out well for them there? No, but they're doing it all over again. So he sees them doing that in Bethel, and he goes to a funeral banquet in Samaria, and what he sees there is, is no kind of, it's not any kind of right worship, not honoring of, of human life. He sees it as an as a excuse for gluttony and decadence. Talk about sins that America, American Christians are struggle with is gluttony and drunkenness and decadence. And he went to the marketplaces and he watched how all these wealthy merchants treated the poor, the orphans, the widows with utter contempt, cheating them out of hard-earned uh, uh, money. And so that's the culture of Israel. These are supposed to be God's people and they look just as ungodly as all these other nations we see listed on this map. And so Amos for a few months' time, it's believed, goes back and forth between Samaria and Bethel, which are Israel's capitals for government and religion, respectively, and condemns them both. And he is downright brutal. Some of the stuff we're going to read here is is shocking language. The prophets say really harsh things. At one point, Amos talks about a drunken drunken housewives who bully their husbands, their families, and oppress their hired help. At one point, he also condemns wealthy merchants who can hardly wait for Sabbath to be over so they can go back to the marketplace and get back to work cheating people with imbalanced weights. And so over the course of his sermons that are all collected here in the book of Amos, we're going to see five major themes emerge, and I'll go over those very quickly. First of all, Amos is constantly going to question Israel's belief that they are somehow indestructible. Israel acted this way because Israel thought there's going to be no consequences to their immoral behavior. And he challenges that. Now, spoiler, you read it here in verse 1. There's a giant earthquake that's coming their way that's going to decimate the land. That's two years after his ministry. But even further down the line, they're going to have to reckon with the Assyrians. So he questions their belief that they're somehow special or indestructible. Secondly, he probes the nature of their worship of God. Is it sincere? A lot of them go on to, they go to church, they sing all the hymns, they get dressed up, they clean themselves up. They, some of them might even keep up with some of the Old Testament laws, but is that a sincere worship? And I think the answer you're going to find is most often no. Number three, he draws attention, especially to the wealthy people, how that they can be what he says are violent and unjust to the people that are below them. Instead of using their resources to be helpful, instead of um, being considerate or compassionate, they know they can get away with cheating people that have less than them, taking advantage of widows, orphans, foreigners, the whole deal. And so he confronts them about that. We live in a wealthy nation, and, and as I look at this crowd, I know we're mostly middle class people, but we're all very well off. And so 
I think these are good words for us to consider about how God takes seriously people that, uh, you know, have a good and comfortable life. I'm not saying that everybody here is rich or, or wealthy. I know none of us really are in that sense, but God takes seriously the, the, the blessings we have and if we use that for ill or for good. Number four, he destroys the whole, not just the, um, not just the, the, the wealthy and elite, but that he just, just absolutely upsets and destroys the whole community's pride and their economy and their military. He's going to confront that and say, your banks and your armies will not save you from what's coming. And finally, he reminds them all that the coming destruction that's heading their way if they don't repent doesn't mean that God won't ultimately fulfill his purposes of redeeming Israel and redeeming the nations. I'll go ahead and give you a spoiler alert because we're heading into some choppy waters here. But at the end of Amos, we get a vision in chapter 9 that God is calling all nations, including Israel, to himself. There will be a kingdom that God builds one day with all these people on the map and with others. So that's the good news. But before we get to the kingdom, we're going to have to face some condemnation first. And so that is our ultimate goal, is to see that God is gracious and redemptive, but not before we take God seriously as holy and just. And so as I mentioned, just two years after Amos is is finished preaching, a huge earthquake comes through and decimates the country. And it causes some people to start to think, maybe Amos was on to something. They don't listen, though, and eventually, some years later, Assyria comes through and wipes them out and takes the rest of the survivors into exile. So all this is uh, to say that Amos' ministry to Israel is supposed to be a wake-up call to them. He He is confronting them, showing them, not covering it up and not being polite about it, showing them their evil actions, behavior, and thoughts, both in how they worship God and how they live with one another. They despise God, it seems, and they despise their neighbors. And if they don't repent, they will perish. And verse 2 tells us, strikingly, the Lord roars from Zion, that is, from Jerusalem. Now, the image we're supposed to get here is of an angry and and ready-to-attack lion. And so that is God looking out at the nations, looking out at Israel, and is furious and is dangerous. Now, we'll get to God dealing justly with his own people, namely Israel. But for the remainder of our time here tonight, we're going to focus on how God deals justly with Israel's corrupt neighbors and enemies we see here. Because he's totally outraged at their evil. But remember, the Lord is roaring from Zion. He is closest to his people. That's where the real danger is the people that are closest to him. So while the Lord may be on the mountaintop looking at all these people that are surrounding the mountain, ready to condemn them, the people are right at the base of where the Lord is. And so that's really where the most danger, where the the intensity of his wrath will be poured out. But let's go ahead and look, um, starting in verse 3 through chapter 2, verse 3. Now, one of the major facets of Amos theology here is that God is sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over every geopolitical entity. 
meaning that every aspect of culture and business and worship of all these nations falls under his rule and his domain. And while his fundamental disposition towards his creation, towards his people, his image bearers, is one of love and mercy, in the case of their stubborn, unrepentant sinfulness, he will act with judgment if he has to. He's patient with them for a while, which is why he doesn't tear them down to nothing as soon as they get started. He gives them time to repent, but they don't do it. And so now is the time that the Lord is going to speak up and act. So Amos is going to spend the rest of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, as you can see, drawing a target around these nations. And as you'll notice, that, that, that starts to narrow in. So he goes first to Damascus and then down all the way to Gaza, then up to Tyre and then to Eden and Ammon and Moab. And all the time we're working closer and closer in towards Israel. And, and scholars point out how Amos's words here match a lot of ancient war oracles. Now, what are those? Those are like uh, military speeches that you might hear a commander give to kind of rev up his army before they go in marching into battle with someone. So meaning what Amos, how Amos sounds here to his audience is he sounds like somebody that's declaring war for the sake of the Lord, on these nations. So that's what is, is, is happening. The Lord is declaring war against all these people. And so Amos names six foreign nations here. There's Syria, which he just names by the capital city, Damascus. Then towards the, the Mediterranean, there's Philistia, where Goliath and his people came from. That's summarized by the, the, the city Gaza. Then up in Phoenicia, it's the city of Tyre, and then these other three regions, Edom, Ammon, and Moab. Now, there's a lot of repetition here, um, and so we'll kind of move through these things briefly, but I want to highlight some of the things that God is rebuking these nations for. Now, one thing you'll, you'll notice, and, and you may have noticed when we read some of this stuff, is that, um, that the Lord says in several times, for three or four crimes, he will not relent against these people. Now that is, from the way I understand it, kind of a Hebrew idiom. You know, if you say, uh, I mean, we understand how that, that term works, yeah. You know, it, it's supposed to indicate that there's, this is a, as a pattern. And so that's what this number three or four times, these three or four crimes is supposed to indicate, that these things are not just a one-time event, but they are a repeated, regular pattern. And so everything the Lord is condemning these nations for is a part of their culture and their DNA. In other words, what he means to say is that these people are repeatedly, serially doing these things. It's not that they did it once, and then never again. No, they, they've repeated these things several times. The Lord confronts Syria or Damascus that you see all the way up there to the north. And he confronts her for brutal and repeated war crimes. The Syrian military has co- gone through this region called Gilead three or four times, he says. And they have thrashed it with iron sledges. Now that's just a metaphor to say that they have mowed down these people in this region several times. And they're in a pattern of doing it again and again. So essentially, he is saying that Syria 
beyond just normal warfare, is brutalizing and humiliating this region over and over again. And God's response to that is to burn their fortress cities, to stop their military power, and to destroy their royal palace and to raise it to the ground before sending them into exile. The armies of Syria are acting like war criminals. And so the Lord says, no more. So that's verses 3 and 5. Look at verses 6 and 8. The Lord confronts Gaza here, but that's a stand-in for Philistia, this whole region. The Philistines are being punished here for their inhumane practice of slave trading. The scriptures say that they are experts at exiling whole communities. And so what that is simply to say is that they are going into these places and pillaging the people and taking them as slaves and then selling them on the market. Now again, in the Old Testament worldview and economy, there can be things like debt slavery. There can be people that, you know, if they can't pay their fines, that they can be indentured servants. And although that's not the ideal for humanity, and, and, and the trajectory of the scriptures go towards abolition, God still sets up rules to keep people from utterly brutalizing one another. But that's not what Gaza and Philistia are, are doing. Instead, they're taking their warrior parties and going into peaceful rural communities and finding people that are self-sustained, dealing with their, their own stuff, have their own economy, and they're decimating them. And they're taking men and women and children off into exile and into slavery. And God is absolutely outraged at this because they're treating people like cattle. And so, and they're doing it simply to make a quick buck. And so God roars against them, we read, promising total destruction of the Philistines. And then on into verses 9 and 10. Phoenicia, or is summarized by Tyre. Now, maybe you heard at the beginning, but this is, Tyre is a coastal community. You can see all the way up there above Israel by the Mediterranean. Jesus even goes there in his ministry. Um, and there's a Syrophoenician woman with uh, her daughter that's unwell. And that's a great story of faith. And I think a, a reminder of where Tyre has come from. But Tyre were uh, a people of, uh, of unbelievable trade and means. I think it's in Ezekiel that you read a lot about Tyre and how God really condemns Tyre for being these merchants that take so much pride in their, their uh, sailing vessels and in their, their industry, but he's, he's condemning them for their pride in those things. Well, he's condemning Tyre here uh, like Gaza, because they not captured slaves, but because they sold them. And so God is outraged at these people because there seems to be um, entire uh, a market for, for slavery. They're the, they're the middleman, in other words. Maybe they're not like Gaza. They're not going into the countryside and, and finding these slaves and raiding and taking them but they're the place where they get sold, either somewhere in the Middle East or maybe up into Italy or Greece. We're not really sure. But we also read that they even broke treaties of brotherhood so that they can get rich, essentially. 
And so see, what we're, what's developing here is we're seeing something in common with all these nations, is that they value wealth and violence over the dignity of human life. That's the one thing that all of these three nations have in common, and God stands against them for that. Their economies mean nothing to him because their economies are fueled by the life, blood, and sacrifice of of these image bearers. And so God is outraged with them because they're in no way operating how they should be as human beings. Now, I'll say this as a brief aside, but we live in a country with one of the most powerful economies in the world. It affects, when, when America's doing poorly, it affects a lot of the other countries in the world. And I'll just say this because, you know, there, there's, there's just, this is in some sense beyond our scope as Christians to do anything about, but as a word of warning and a reminder, a strong economy under unjust circumstances is not a good thing in the eyes of a holy God. I think for us, we, when we see the economy flourishing, we can see that as a blessing. And in some ways it is, because it allows people to necessarily not be in poverty, to be able to pay their bills, and all those things are good. But if you read all throughout the history of the world, and, and even in the Old Testament, a roaring economy does not necessarily mean it is a good thing. All I say that for is this. Be cautious, Christians to not use the stock market or the economy as a predictor for how spiritually the country or the community is doing or how spiritually you're doing either. Just a, just a word of caution there. Now, these next three communities, Edom, Ammon, and Moab, are a little different because not only are they closer to Israel geographically, but they're closer in lineage too. Edom is another name for Esau. And so the Edomites are the descendants of Esau, which are, uh, who was the, the brother of Jacob. So they come from the line of Abraham, but they uh, take after Esau. And so they're related in a very distant way to the Jewish people. And so they're a little bit closer to that covenantal blessing than maybe some of these other pagan communities But unfortunately, in in verses 11 and 12, we read that they are a violent people. Amos describes them as pursuing their own family with a sword, meaning that 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 blood relation has no sacredness to them. They're stifling their own compassion. In other words, when when it may spring up in them, they're suppressing it. And it's, leaving, it's leading them to harbor just unbelievable and incessant rage. In other words, they are violent, vengeful, and vindictive. If anybody crosses them, even their own family, it's the sword they get. And so murder and bloodshed, unfortunately, is the language of Edom. And God roars against them too. Moving on to Ammon in verses 13 through 15. So likewise, these next two nations, I'll go ahead and deal with Moab now too. Ammon and Moab are descendants from the family of Lot. And so they're also close to the Abrahamic line because Lot was the nephew of Abraham, as you remember. So these people share blood relationship and kinship too and culture in some some sense with Israel and Judah. 
So they're close descendants, but Ammon has terrible violence, we read, towards women in order to enlarge and secure their borders. Now remember, just a few minutes ago, I said that in the eyes of the ancient world, when your borders were expanding, that means that God's favor was with you, that that was a good thing, that was a sign of prosperity and spiritual blessing. But Amos says they're doing that by killing and slaughtering babies and pregnant women. And so the Ammonite warriors would assault and slaughter these these wives and these children in order just to expand their farmland. But God comes against them as he has with all these other nations. And we read with a little bit more detail here that they are going to face some of the terrifying um, uh, the, the terrifying things they inflicted on other people, how they're going to, with their own ears, hear these war cries, these shouts of, of battle. That's the things that they probably did to intimidate their neighbors. God says, I'm going to do that to you. And finally, in, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Moab also, from the line of Lot, was in trouble for what seems like the desecration of graves. So what they would do is they would go down to their, their neighbor, Edom. They would maybe um, desecrate uh, the graves of the Edomites, and then they would turn it into lime, usually for plaster in their homes. And so while they're not doing anything to necessarily to the living, although there's some scholars wonder if this is perhaps that they treated the elderly with a certain contempt, what they do show is that they have no respect for life or death or human bodies whatsoever. So between Ammon and Moab, you see an utter disregard for life from womb to tomb. No consideration for children that have yet to be born and for people that have just died. They're all, um, uh, they are all cannon fodder to expand farmland and to expand their houses. And so while Ammon maybe hated the young and living, Moab despised the old and the dying. And so what all of these countries have in common, all of Israel's neighbors have in common, common, is that they would stoop to such humiliating and dehumanizing acts of violence and showing utter contempt for the sacredness of human life, often so they could just get economic gain. So, we're at the end of our, our, our chapter tonight, mercifully so, but the question at this point we may want to ask is, how do we understand and apply all of this together? What do we as Christians get from this? Now, I think a very obvious thing for us to consider, and this is a tough pill to swallow, but I believe it's the truth, is that all nations of this world, all nations, all nations are thoroughly sinful. No nation, no nation on earth, including the one we're in, is without economic injustice, violent bloodshed, and total disregard for human life and flourishing. That's true here as it is anywhere in the world. And so as Christians, we need to remember that although we love our people, we love our community, we're thankful for the blessings of where we live. If we get to a place in our spiritual life where we cannot 
critique and condemn the sin of our own people, we're officially moving into idolatry territory. If God can send prophets to critique Israel and Judah, we're crazy if we don't think we can rightly critique the United States of America. We live in a powerful country. We have to be honest and aware about this. We have to be, I think, to be faithful to the witness of the gospel, be critical of the sins of our own community and nation. I believe if we don't do this, what we'll end up doing is we will tarnish the witness of the true and better nation that is the kingdom of God, that's an international, uh, what's the word for time? It's, it, it spans all time, it spans all borders. This is the people of God from past, present, and future from every square inch of this globe. That's the one true nation towards which this world is moving. We will tarnish the witness of the kingdom of God if we can't be honest about the temporary nations that we're living in. As Christians, I want to remind us our primary allegiance is to God and his way of living, not to the United States of America and its culture for Americans. One of the things I've been very thankful for because it's been helpful to me and a good corrective and rebuke against me. Some evangelical pastors uh, in, in recent years have rebuked us evangelicals for falling for the American dream before we fall for the kingdom of God. But being a people of the kingdom is going to put us at direct odds with our culture, however. Because what that's going to do is it's going to mean that our our ties, our fraternal connections are going to be with other Christians, whether they're in India or Japan or Bolivia or Italy or wherever. Those people are going to be closer to us than maybe the neighbor across the street. Because we're all under the same king, under Jesus. Not under a president, not under a prime minister, not under uh, um, an economic system, not under a particular cultural milieu. We're under King Jesus. But as we'll continue to see in Amos, God is radically sovereign over the nations. And so he's going to hold every last one of them accountable. Every single one, past, present, and future. And so as a word of warning to us, be cautious, Christians, to not be tempted to align yourself with the mighty of this world, with the powerful and the rich and the influential of this world. That's very tempting because they can promise what seems like security in this life but they can't offer eternal security. And we'll see all throughout the scriptures that God does not overlook how any government, any military, any administration, any corporation, any economy, or any community, how they treat their weakest and poorest citizens. That is a good barometer and a good indicator for the spiritual health of any nation is how they treat their disadvantaged, their disabled Um, the widows, the orphans, even the immigrants and foreigners, how they treat those people indicates how they would treat God himself. In fact, if anything, tonight's passage shows us that God will turn into a roaring and ravaging lion when defenseless and needy people are taken advantage of. I'm trying to be very cautious about this because I I know we live in a a very tense and, and divided time. But there are, there are so many things in our world, in our nation, right now, 
where people are just taken advantage of, and I, I think we want to turn a blind eye to those things, the church can be a witness against that stuff by saying, we welcome, we welcome people that have nowhere else to go. Because that's who we were, spiritually speaking. And so that's what we're to be as the church. Everyone you read here tonight, these people had palaces. They had all the finest technology. They had the administration they wanted. And God set loose on them like a lion. We need to be careful, church, about who we ultimately trust and put our hope in. And remember this, as a, as a word of encouragement, I know this has been intense and, and we're winding down now, but as a word of encouragement, remember who Jesus cherishes all throughout the Gospels. Remember the poor in spirit, the meek, those that mourn, those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, those that are persecuted, the orphans, the widows, the prostitutes, the sickly, the altogether unrighteous, those are the people for whom Jesus comes. And if, if me being honest about my weakness and foolishness means that I get to be with Jesus, then sign me up. I'd rather be honest about that than try to hide those things and try to buddy up and, and get shoulder to shoulder with the rich and important people when Jesus is going looking for the lost sheep. Paul tells us, That God reveals his love and wisdom, not in the wise and the powerful in this world, but the foolish and the weak. So don't boast, Christian, in any other strength than Christ to save lowly sinners like us. Let's pray. Father, help us to hear and understand these scriptures. Help us in these coming weeks to take them with utmost seriousness, but also with great hope, knowing that Our faith and our future are all in you. We know that these are your authoritative words that reveal Jesus to us. So help us to trust them as we trust you. For it's in Jesus' name we ask and pray all these things. Amen.